Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. Today I'm joined by my friend and co-host Dustin McGowan. Good day. To discuss an interview that I recorded with Dr. Robert P. Jones or Robbie. But before we listen to the interview, I want to take a minute to talk about the context of the interview. Listeners may know that we started the All Word podcast and event series in summer 2022 to talk about reparations in the church. In the summer of 22, in season one of the podcast, we spoke to Greg Thompson, Jamar Tisby, and local black people about the white Christian response to racism. And then in fall 2022, Jamar spoke at the library about his book, How to Fight Racism. In the spring of 23, Greg spoke at the library about his book, Reparations, and we started season two of the podcast in which we're speaking to people who can help us on our journey towards racial justice. In the first half of season two, we've heard from Greg, Christina Edmondson, Soong Chan Ra, Propaganda, and myself. Now, in the second half of season two, we'll hear from Robert Jones, William Darity, Michael Rhodes, and Akemini Yuan. So we're very excited about the second half of season two as we continue on our journey towards racial justice together. So now let's listen to the interview with Robbie. Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. Today, we will talk to Dr. Robert P. Jones, or Robbie, uh, who is the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute and the author of the award-winning books, White Too Long and the End of White Christian America. Robbie received a PhD in religion from Emory University and MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a BS in computing science and mathematics from Mississippi College. So Robbie, thank you for being with us today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to, to have you on the podcast. Um, first, can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and, and why are you here on a podcast talking about reparations in the church today? Well, um, you know, I'm here, I think, because I'm uh, on a similar journey. You know, I'm, 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 I'm white, uh, or group thinking of myself as white, I should say, um, uh, to be more accurate. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, for the most part. Uh, but my, my people, you know, as we say in the South, are, are from middle Georgia, going back six generations. Um, so uh, we, we are in and around Macon, Georgia, Twiggs County, Bibb County, Georgia, um, again, you know, back six on both sides of my family. In fact, uh, my brother and sister and I are the first generation uh, since 1800 not to live in either Bibb County or Twiggs County, uh, Georgia. So we have deep, deep roots in the South. Our, our roots are uh, uh, Baptist for the most part. We have a few Methodists thrown in for good measure, but for the most part, it's, it's Baptist all the way back, um, you know, from the very beginning. Um, and, you know, I'll just give you one little quick insight that I think one of the things that's kind of spurred me on this journey is um, that one of the things I have in my possession uh, handed down from my mother's side of the family is the family Bible. Um, it was printed in 1799. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, uh, is, it was the property of my uh, fifth great grandfather. His name was Pleasant Moon. Um, and it was given to him in 1815. Uh, and in, in the, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it has those family genealogy pages, right? And if you've got 
those old family Bibles have that. And, you know, there's births, deaths, marriages, all that kind of written down for multiple generations between the two Testaments, um, you know, in this, in this uh, Bible. Um, and, but, you know, the other document I have in my possession that um, was a little bit of a shock to me was when I was doing some genealogical research, and I came across another document from that same year he received the Bible uh, in 1815, and that was an estate settlement of his uncle. So this would have been my sixth great uncle um, and for whom he was named. Um, so he was also named Pleasant Moon, uh, this uh, this uncle. Um, and it listed, you know, everything in his estate. It listed, you know, um, six head of sheep and uh, a kitchen table and six chairs, a feather bed, and all the kind of items in his property. And among those things listed were four human beings. Uh, and they were listed by name, um, you know, one uh, a fe female, Nora, and they had do dollar amounts out beside them at $500. Um, and seeing, you know, these enslaved people listed, you know, literally next to sheep and chairs and other kinds of property, um, you know, in my ancestors uh, document, and knowing that this was like the same year that this this prize family Bible was handed down, you know, was there was something about those two things coming together, and I could literally hold these two things in my hand at the same time, and it began to feel like this single sheet of paper that had the estate listing had the same weight of this Bible, right, that had been handed down. And one, this great, you know, thing people are proud of, this other thing that, it, you know, I kind of heard rumors and vaguely knew that some of my ancestors had enslaved other people, but seeing it with names and dollars amounts, you know, next to them was was something else. I think, you know, um, it, it, it's been, a, a, I think, a long journey uh, for me. And, but, um, you know, the last couple of books uh, have really just been about, I mean, I'm an academic, so, you know, you use the tools you have and um, uh, to kind of help sort things out. And so I kind of use my academic kind of tools to try to dig in and try to make sense of those deep contradictions and, and um, help me understand how we got to where we are, you know, not just uh, my family, but I think it explains a lot about the country, right, and the kind of big racial tensions and the ways that Christianity, particularly white Christianity, has been just wrapped up with them from the beginning. Well, Robbie, thank you for sharing that introduction, some of your story, uh, which you you weave in uh, to some of your writing, uh, white too long, I think, in a compelling way. Uh, you're kind of an enigma to me because it's like, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're strong on the data. Uh, you know, there's lots of uh, surveys and such, but also you weave in some stories um, in some ways that I think are really powerful and unique. I don't, I don't know that I've read um, much uh, that's written in the way that your books are written, um, and I appreciate that. They're, they're unique um, and I think really compelling. So I, I appreciate uh, you pointing out the, the mix of, you know, kind of narrative and, and data. I mean, at, at heart, I am kind of a numbers guy. I mean, you know, I was a computer science and math undergraduate kind of, you know, math nerd. Um, but I, I had been working hard to you know, try to learn to write and, and to tell stories. And, and most of that was really realizing that um, in order to understand those numbers, we really did have to understand more history. Um, and history is essentially, you know, the story of how we got here. Um, and so I, I have tried to learn how to not only tell those stories, but to try to tell the story of, you know, my own family and, and how we got uh, to where we are too, because I, I think that that's sort of, you know, all of us, I think, um, you know, who, again, kind of 
grew up thinking of ourselves as white, I think really do have a responsibility to try to learn to retell our family stories and to um, get a better understanding of how we got here, how we own the land, what we own, um, you know, how we got um, the opportunities that we got, um, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you've been uh, an example for me um, as I try to communicate uh, what I'm learning to other people. Um, you know, I know that people really connect with story, um, sometimes more than data. And so we need, we need both. They're both important, but I've appreciated your example in that telling or retelling uh, the story of the country and of your family too, and your, your personal story in a way that, um, you know, I think is, is vulnerable um, at times, but, but powerful. So, um, Robbie, if I had to summarize uh, your two books, White Too Long and The End of White Christian America in one sentence, uh, it would be White Christian America is sick and dying. And in the end of White Christian America, you assert that White Christian America is dying. You open the book with an obituary for White Christian America, define who White Christian America is in chapter one and describe how it is dying in chapter two. So can you help us understand who white Christian America is and how data shows it is dying? Mm. Yeah, um, you know, so the, uh, it, the just to kind of put the full arc on it, you know, in the end of white Christian America, I did start with, um, you know, only half tongue-in-cheek obituary for what I wrote it in the, in the style of an obituary. Um, uh, and then I ended the book um, you know, uh, really with, um, you know, a, a, a kind of benediction at, at the end of the book. Um, and I thought it was an appropriate, you know, metaphor to think about um, this cultural juggernaut, um, which was really, you know, we we even have an acronym for it. You know, it was uh, originally, it was, it was Protestant. So it was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, America. So WASP, um, um, that, that really did have um, a lockhold on power in this country. So, you know, the chances are, um, say, in the middle of the 20th century, if you were in charge of something big, important, whether it was government elected officials, whether it was a big corporation, uh, even down at the local level, if you were mayor or head of a bank, um, you know, chances were very good that you were white. Um, you were, you know, you're kind of some kind of European descent. Um, you were Protestant, not Catholic or Jewish, um, uh, and you were male, uh, and you were you were straight or at least outwardly uh, heterosexual um, uh, to the public, and and that was really the world, um, uh, you know, that that uh, that had a lock hold on power um, in this country until very until very very recently. So it really is that world. Um, both demographically speaking um, and culturally and politically speaking, you know, that that really did uh, control, uh, you know, the country. Um, and what I noticed in the data um, in the, in the as, as we turned into the 21st century was some real shifts in that in that uh, makeup of the country and, and, and in the, the, the end of white Christian America, which was published in 2016. So I was using 2014 data uh, in that book. Um, I, but we were already picking it up that, uh, for example, in that book, I, I noted that uh, if you just go back to, say, 2008, when we were, you know, elected our first African-American president, which is also a symbol of great change in this country. Um, but, but at that time, the country was still 
a majority white and Christian. So if you take all white Christians together, Catholic, Protestant, non-denominational, uh, whatever, they, they made up 54% of the country um, in 2008. Uh, by 2014, the date I was using the book, that number had dropped to 47%, right? So just during the presidency of our first African-American president, we, we shifted, demographically speaking, in the country from being a majority white Christian country to one that was no longer a majority uh, white Christian uh, uh, country. And, and notably today, that number has continued to slip. Our latest numbers we just released last week um, have that number of white Christians in the country at 42 uh, percent. So it, it continues uh, to be on the decline. So I use that that metaphor of of dying. And, and at the end of the book, I even use Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief um, as a metaphor for thinking about how white Christians are coping, um, and, and not very well, uh, for the most part, um, with this this change in their fortunes, um, and, and really with the death of this dominance um, in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was really powerful for me uh, to read the data. Um, difficult to argue with. Um, certainly, you know, the question arises: How are we to feel about this? Um, but, but the data is clear. Um, and, and also, I, I appreciated the way that you broke it down geographically. So, so I live in Arkansas. Um, and in chapter two, you show a map of states where white Protestants, and this was in, in 14, 2014 data, mm -hmm. um, you showed a map of states where white Protestants represent more than 50% of the population. And uh, at that time, there were six such states, five of them were in the South, and one of them was Arkansas. And so um, this map helped me see that white Christian America is dying at different speeds in different mm -hmm. parts of the country said differently, the sun is setting on white Christian cultural dominance at different times and different places. This was fascinating to me because um, I like to drive. I prefer to drive uh, over flying. And I've driven across, you know, uh, sizable segments of the countries. And you can see uh, on billboards, uh, you know, the culture of a place. And it's fascinating to me driving through the Ozarks uh, and, you know, Arkansas, Tennessee, Missouri, um, and seeing those cultural expressions, um, but but wondering um, and considering, uh, you know, as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, uh, perhaps uh, the sun will set on, uh, as you said, white Christian cultural dominance uh, in my place, too. Um, and that's been very provocative for me. And so I wonder if you could speak to that sort of um, you know, the, the geography um, of, of the death or the, the decline of, of white Christian America. Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting that, you know, what it looks like, you know, in the country today, you know, where you can see still um, this more uh, kind of white Christian dominance is sort of a, a U-shape that comes down through the Midwest and then up um, the Appalachian Mountains, right? So through, through, up through kind of Missouri, Arkansas, and then up through Kentucky, West Virginia, kind of up, up that direction. Um, but it is changing um, everywhere. I mean, that, that's worth, um, you know, worth, worth saying uh, that, that we really are seeing this shift, um, you know, ac across the board. And it's not just, you know, California and New York, or it's not a bi-coastal uh, phenomenon that, that, that the numbers are, are pretty consistently, um, you know, dropping over time in terms of kind of white Christian dominance. 
there, you know, and I th you, and you can see it, you can see it on billboards. You can also see it like, you know, around my, my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, for example, you know, just outside of Jackson now, um, there is a, 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 a massive Hindu temple, um, you know, being built in Flowood, uh, or it's actually built now in, in, in Flowood, um, you know, from a Hindu community, um, you know, that uh, has really been, been uh, you know, here in the last, you know, three decades or so. Um, but it, it now has, has enough, you know, wealth and presence and all that to kind of build this beautiful, gleaming white, you know, Hindu temple uh, right outside of, of Jackson. And, you know, there's kind of a, a, a horse pasture still there. And then here's the temple, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I think we're seeing, you know, not just in you know, Spanish language radio and billboards and uh, the changing foods and grocery stores. I mean, you could you could see all of that happening and in in kind of responses to the demographic you know, shifts in the country. And I do think that's been one of the hardest things, I think, for white Christians to get um, their heads around, right, is, is that, you know, if you're used to um, kind of, you know, owning the table, and I, I kind of use this table metaphor sometimes, you know, that um, uh, I have an antique uh, dining room table in my, uh, uh, in my, in my dining room here at home, and it's built in the 40s, uh, and you know it it has it's an oval table and it has a single chair that's different than all the other chairs, um, and it it's called the captain's chair and and that chair is wider and bigger than the others and it's the only chair that has arms uh, on it and that chair was like built for the father right to sit at the head it'll only fit on either end at the head of the table it doesn't fit very well on the sides so it's designed to as a place of authority right to sit at the head of the table and literally preside over family dinner. And this was a kind of, you know, hierarchical notion of gender roles kind of built into our furniture um, uh, these days. Um, I should say that we we gave that chair to my daughter um, as a way of kind of not reinforcing, um, you know, those roles at our own family dinner, um, but um, to our oldest daughter. But the, um, uh, but but I think it's that that's a good metaphor for, I mean, white Christians are basically used to sitting at that chair, right? Metaphorically speaking in the country and presiding over things. And when we have welcomed people to the table, it has been as guests, right? At a table that we owned. Um, and I think one of the things we're having to get used to um, and appropriately used to, but, but we're having a hard time with it um, is um, realizing that, oh, okay, we can't pretend that we're we own the table and that we're sitting at that chair, but we have to be willing to pull up a chair on equal terms uh, with with others, um, you know, at at the the table that represents the nation uh, today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful metaphor. Appreciate you sharing that, and that helps us transition uh, to my next point. Um, so, in chapter five, uh, you talk about race, and you continue to talk about race. And white too long, and so we'll we'll transition to that book in a moment. But I wanted to pause and and discuss um, some of the things that I learned from you in in uh, the end of White Christian America about race. And so, uh, in chapter five, you write that in 2013, uh, the average social networks of white Americans were 91 percent white, and that 80 percent of white evangelicals and 85% of white mainline Protestants had 100% white social networks. And, and so that, that was powerful to me. Um, and you continue to talk uh, about segregation and, and also to explain why desegregating church is difficult. And with help from Jennifer Harvey, 
you suggest that white Christians have overemphasized reconciliation and underemphasized repentance and repair. And, and I want to quote you here. You conclude chapter five with these words uh, that really resonated with me. Quote, Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge has now been crossed by the nation's first black president. But 50 years later, the ramifications of that bloody Sunday are with us. Racial reconciliation remains a destination far on the horizon, and there are no shortcuts at hand. The road under white Christian America's descendants' feet must first lead through the uncharted terrain of remembering, repentance, and repair. So, Robbie, can you talk to us about segregation mm. and where white Christian Americans have gone wrong in desegregating churches? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, so the first thing to say, I'll start with the numbers because it, it this is where the challenge really is. And and the, the problems are that even though we, you know, we are no longer living in an official Jim Crow situation where buses and waiting rooms and you know and and neighborhoods are like by law uh uh segregated, uh we're still living with that legacy in our friendship networks. Um, and so we, we um, you cited this 2013 survey. We actually updated that survey last year um, to see if we'd made any progress. And, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, uh, on the one hand, and what we did in that study, just to be clear, is that we asked respondents to tell us about their close friendships. Uh, so not just people that they casually know, but people that they have uh, uh, conversations about personal things on a regular basis. It's kind of how we talked about it in the survey. And we asked them to name up to seven people and then to tell us about those people. What race are they? What religion are they? What's their political leaning? Are they male, they female, et cetera? And try to get a, a, a kind of map, really, of people's friendship networks. And what we found in 2013 among white Americans is that their friendship networks were 91% white uh, on average. That's the number you just gave. It turns out in 2022, eight years later, um, we made very little progress on that on that metric um, uh, that that we found that it's still 90 percent uh, that among whites, 90 percent of their network is, is is white. And so part of the problem there really is that, um, you know, what you need, right, is people who don't just reinforce your worldview um, in order to um, kind of help you think differently um, about things in the world. Um, and, and so most the vast majority right, of white people have no close friend uh, that could, for example, you know, if, uh, uh, if if they sort of, you know, make a, a joke that's sort of racially insensitive or, or repeat a joke that's racially insensitive, if they, um, you know, say that they're, you know, skeptical about the Black Lives Matter movement, there's no one in their network to say, well, hold on. Um, or if they say, you know, I really think Confederate monuments should just stay up. It's all about Southern pride. So not about racism. There's there's no one in their uh, close friendship network to say, well, hold on, let's talk about that. Um, and I, I think that's the beginning of change. And so the problem is that we are so um, surrounded by people who just uh, see the world the same way that we do, um, that it doesn't present us with a lot of opportunities, I think, for, uh, for seeing things differently. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And then I think in terms of the reconciliation uh, piece of things. I think this is where also where uh, these homogeneous networks don't help us. 
is that most whites have in mind, um, you know, kind of getting as quickly as possible to a kind of kumbaya moment uh, where we all put our arms around each other and uh, embrace and say, let's be brothers and, um, you know, let's put all this nasty racist stuff behind us. Um, and that sounds great. In fact, I, I kind of talk about it as, um, you know, if we really take a step back and look at it, 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 it really is a form of what, you know, we in church sometimes call cheap grace. Um, you know, you know, is, is the way I really think about this is that we we want the end result without really going through um, uh, the process of true repentance. You know that, uh, you know, when we, I mean, both, you know, the the Old Testament and the New Testament tell, you know, we in the words, you know, the the text has this in the words of God, right, telling us, look, um, you know, I don't want you coming and worshiping me. Uh, if you get something wrong between you and your brother and your sister, go make that right first and then come uh, to the altar. And I think we really haven't taken that very seriously. Um, you know, and, and so when we reach for reconciliation I, from the white side of the divide, I think it's important uh, to remember that, that that's often taking place without a real uh, intent or um, willingness to look at the damage um, that's been done. Um, you know, we're talking decades uh, of damage that we can point to in our lifetimes. We're talking centuries of damage we can point to with the legacy of slavery, uh, legalized segregation, Jim Crow, lynching. I mean, these are all very real things that deprive people of very material things, you know, their lives, their property, their opportunities, uh, and did so generation over generation. And, um, so we really have to do figure out how to reckon with that. I mean, if we really want to repent, I mean, that's the full, I mean, I think we are operating with a kind of impoverished view of repentance um, uh, in, in most kind of white Christian theologies. And, and so I think we've got to kind of get to a more robust understanding of repentance and what, what that really demands uh, of, of us on our, our side of the fence. And in most cases, I think the best way to do that, it, I've kind of said, I really wish, uh, you know, white Christians would stop talking about reconciliation. I really do. Um, because I, I think if if we would stop talking about rec reconciliation and start talking about um, repair um, and how do we repair the damage, um, you know, our, our black brothers and sisters are going to tell us when we're reconciled. Um, that's just, that's going to be a byproduct of, mm. of repair. Uh, but the real work um, is confession and, and repair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we can over over communicate that point, Robbie. I mean, to me, in my journey, that's been one of the most formative things. And, and it is a little bit counterintuitive because we, we started talking about our social networks and suggesting that, um, and you suggested this, Jennifer Harvey has, Jamar Tisby has, Emerson and Smith and Divided by Faith have, like, as white people, we need relationships with people of color generally, Black people specifically, um, to help us change. We, we need to know uh, people. Uh, we, yeah. Jamar talks about the ARC, uh, awareness of racial injustice related. So it is imperative um, that we have friends, uh, close friends, people that we can talk to about these issues who can help us learn and grow. Um, but but the, the tricky thing, um, and I think you just said it well, like, well, the way that I've made sense of it is like, I'm not a good friend uh, to my black brothers and sisters if I'm not invested in uh, repairing uh, the, the conditions in which we all live. 
Um, and, and, you know, Duke Juan, I think, has said it well and, and in a sort of silly but provocative way. He quotes uh, Daniel Tiger, the, the PBS kids <laughs> character who says, you know, first, uh, first, I say, first we say I'm sorry, then how can I help? Um, Emerson and Smith, I think when they're talking about the racial reconciliation movement, they equate it to, you know, a big brother who, who pushes his little brother down, takes his toy, and then demands the little brother get up and give him a hug. Um, and, yeah. and we, you know, I, I have small children and, and we teach my, our children like, you know, no, that's not, we don't do that. Um, we, we return uh, what we've stolen, be it a toy or, you know, uh, more substantive things in this conversation. Um, and then, as you said, um, you know, reconciliation is a byproduct and we all want that reconciliation. We want that beloved community. Um, but man, I mean, the cheap grace point, yeah, it's going to it's going to cost us something um, if we want to get from here to there. And we need to we need to talk about that um, or, or else we, we've got no shot at healing. Um, so I, I so appreciate your treatment of, of that that topic. Um, well, well, Robbie, let's let's transition um, to white too long, and, and we'll continue the conversation about race uh, from that book. So in white too long, um, with help from James Baldwin, you assert that white Christian America is sick. And you open the book with these words from Baldwin, quote, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. You quote Baldwin elsewhere in the book, um, but what have you learned uh, from Baldwin about the sickness of whiteness? Yeah, you know, I, I think in many ways, I mean, I, I quote James Baldwin at, in, as the epigraph of the book with that quote. And, and I, I did it in many ways because I, I found that I just kept circling back to his writing and, and I did not get exposed to his writing really until the last decade um, or so. I mean, I knew his name, but I'd really never read um, The Fire Next Time. I'd never read really anything he had written. Um, and as I read, you know, I realized that that he was really um, writing this before most white people were willing, were, were in a place where they could even hear what he was saying. Um, you know, he was writing in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, uh, and uh, it, it, I, I thought in many ways of this book as, as kind of my attempt to respond to Baldwin um, and, his, and the legitimate critiques, concerns um, uh, that, he, that he had. And, and I'll read just, just the rest of that quote because uh, I, 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 the part you read is what I have at the beginning of the, um, of, of there, but, and I'll set it up real quickly too, that, that this is, this, this is came from an op-ed that he wrote um, shortly after uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So I think Baldwin, like many um, uh, African-American civil rights leaders and writers were hoping Right, that at some point in the struggle, that there would reach a tipping point when white people, and particularly good white Christian people of conscience, would really stand up on the side of civil rights for African Americans. And in the wake of King's um, assassination, when there was not a mass uprising of white Christian people, um, you know, on the side of civil rights, even in the in the face of that kind of violence. 
um, perpetrated, um, you know, um, uh, you know, in such kind of cold blood, and it 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 was, I think, so troubling to him that that it just only caused a, a ripple among most white uh, Christian consciences, and and that's that's when he wrote that quote in the New York Times. The rest of it, um, so I'll kind of pick up with where you, um, you know, he this this line about um, about white people being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. He, that's the reason why he says that is because if they, if they don't respond to this, what is going to prick their consciences uh, to make them respond? And then he says, they have been white, if I may put it, too long. And here's the rest of it. Uh, they have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. They are unable to conceive that their version of reality, which they want me to accept, is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs and an intolerable violation of myself. And, you know, I think he's really challenging us there to tell the truth, you know, and, and the hard part of that is not just to tell the truth about historical events, but to tell the truth about ourselves, our ancestors, our institutions, um, and the role that they played, um, you know, in in getting us to where we are uh, today. And so in many ways, that that was really the driving force between what I was trying to do um, in White Too Long is just, you know, I'm sure I didn't get it right in many places, but to make my best effort at the time to tell the truth, um, uh, to tell the truth about white Christianity, tell the truth about my own family, uh, and to tell the truth about myself and how it's really shaped, um, you know, my own thinking and, and ways that I'm still, frankly, uh, trying to undo. Yeah, thank you for that, Robbie. Um, I, I, too, have been slow to find uh, the treasure that is James Baldwin. Uh, I read The Fire Next Time uh, in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, in that Baldwin says, you know, the tendency among um, black folks, Negroes is the word that he uses, um, is to dismiss mm. white people as the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. Yeah. And, um, you know, but he's not the only one to say that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I read... Um, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, one of King's last works. And he says something very similar about the white church, um, that we've deceived ourselves, that we've believed lies. And, um, you know, of course, Malcolm X uh, said very similar things. And as I reflect on the words of Jesus, you know, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, Part of my motivation in this journey certainly has been equity for my, my black siblings, um, but part of it has been, you know, my own freedom. I don't mm -hmm. want to believe lies. I don't want my children to believe lies. I want us to know the truth. Um, yes, about who Jesus is, but but also about the story of, of my family and our place and, and of our country. Um, and, and I want that for my white siblings, too. I want us to know the truth. And, and to be set free by it. And so I think that certainly Baldwin and the other authors I mentioned have helped me on that journey, as have you. Um, and, and so with that, Robbie, we, I wish we had time to discuss every chapter of White Too Long. We don't, I encourage listeners to, to read the book, um, but I wanna focus on the first and the last chapter. 
And so in the first chapter, seeing, you introduce your thesis, which I understand to be uh, as follows, uh, quote, the historical record of lived Christianity in America reveals that Christian theology and institutions have been the central cultural tentpole holding up the very idea of white supremacy and the genetic imprint of this legacy remains present and measurable in contemporary white Christianity, not only among evangelicals in the South, but also among mainline Protestants in the Midwest and Catholics in the Northeast. And so, Robbie, how has the sickness of whiteness infected white Christian America? Yeah, well, here's where, you know, I, I even if I didn't have data, I mean, the history, um, if we really understand our history, um, it would be pretty evident, um, you know, and um, the, but, but we do have data, um, and you can, and, and it is measurable. Um, so, you know, what I, I, one of the things that I kind of central kind of research findings in White Too Long was to try to measure, um, uh, you know, the extent that racist views, denials of systemic racism, valorization of the Confederacy, um, you know, uh, yeah, just denials that that anything in the past has to do with anything in the, in the any inequalities in the present, uh, et cetera, um, uh, is I, I set up a, a, a measure of those things that consisted of really a pretty robust uh, way of getting at this in public opinion surveys. It was, I used 15 different questions um, uh, kind of across those kinds of uh, lines that really came out, I called it uh, the racism index, the combined effect of those 15 questions. Um, and, you know, what I found is that if you look at white Americans, um, that Christianity, you know, um, has this curious um, and disturbing effect, um, that, that it boils down to this. If you take your, um, with the racism index, I scored it kind of, you know, one to 10, um, kind of score of one was holding the least racist attitudes, 10 was holding the most racist attitudes. And the conclusion really that the data um, leads us to is that if you take your average white American and you add Christian identity, it moves them higher on uh, the racism index rather than lower. Uh, so I'll say that again, you take your average American, you add Christian identity, it moves them higher on the racism index rather than lower. So, um, you know, when I scored uh, different white Christian subgroups um, on, on the scale. Um, for example, white evangelical Protestants, those are kind of my people, um, heavily in the South, Southern Baptists uh, and the like, um, uh, uh, so that, that, that white evangelicals scored um, eight out of 10 um, on this racism index. Uh, but when I looked at white non-evangelical Protestants, often called mainline Protestants, that are more, you know, outside the South, really in the Midwest, um, uh, they scored seven out of 10. And, and white Catholics, who even have their own history of being discriminated against, um, also scored seven um, out of 10 on this racism index. So you can see it. And, and just as comparison, whites who are not Christian, who claim no religious affiliation, only score four out of 10 um, on this index. And, you know, this is with and, and even if you control for all kinds of things like, um, you know, partisanship and income and education, uh, gender, uh, even region, uh, you know, even with all these statistical controls in, and that means that you're just trying to make sure it's not those, those results aren't because of other factors. Um, Christianity, Christian identity uh, 
and white Christian identity remain independent predictors of scoring higher um, on the racism index. Um, and so it was, it's just stunning um, how powerful um, this connection, you know, still is. And, and again, it's still measurable. And I, I remember when I first saw those results, um, I actually had our team, uh, somebody else other than me, like run them two or three times just to make sure they were right, because I, I, I was stunned. Uh, that it was that measurable, that clear, and that big. The effect was that big, um, you know, that you could see in the data. And, you know, but the more that I, I sat with the history, um, uh, you know, my, my initial response was something like, well, God, you know, how can this be um, that, that this is true? Um, and, um, but the more I sat with the history, that, that, that initial response of how can this be really did slowly shift uh, to an understanding, um, and, and it, it shifted to, well, how could this be otherwise, uh, given the history? Yeah, the data was really powerful to me. There's a couple points um, that I wanted to call out. One, um, and you'll, you'll maybe help me understand or remind me of the specific terminology, but there's a dissonance between uh, I believe white evangelicals specifically are self-perception. So we we report, yeah. uh, if I remember correctly, exceptionally warm feelings towards black people, um, but conversely, ex exceptionally racist views uh, relative to, uh, as you mentioned, sort of the the balance of the population. And so back to the, you know, Baldwin and King, this this self-deception. We we've not seen ourselves as we are. Um, so I would love for you to comment on that, but also you put some color to the numbers and, and you suggest, listen, if you were recruiting for a white supremacist cause, um, you would have more luck on a Sunday morning going to the parking lot of a white church than to some other location. Did I get those those two things right? Can you comment? Yeah, on that? specifically that certainly then if you were like trying to go into a coffee shop of whites who were sitting out church, right? On that on that same Sunday morning who were religiously unaffiliated. That's what the data says. That that the odds of you finding someone sympathetic to your to your white supremacist cause if you were that person, uh, yeah, you you'd have better odds uh in the church parking lots. Mm -hmm. And any any additional comments on the um the way that we see ourselves, the feelings. Yeah, that we're no, I think that word self-deception is is the right one um, that that you used, and you know, as you said, I mean, that's the very definition of sin, right? Is mm. um, believing something about yourself that's not true, and particularly believing uh, yourself to be better than than you are, um, right? Are innocent uh, when in fact you're guilty. Um, I mean, this is the very definition of, of sin and self-delusion. Um, and and I think that's right that that the that number it, it was pretty astounding that 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 white evangelicals are simultaneously that's right the people who hold the warmest views if you just ask them how warmly do you feel about African Americans they score themselves very high um, feeling warmly toward African Americans and yet when we ask them questions about uh, the Confederate flag and the Confederate monuments about um, whether white supremacy is still a problem, whether the legacy of slavery um, still contributes to any uh, inequalities, whether the criminal justice system or police treat African Americans any differently uh, than whites, they deny all of that, right? So 
Um, and, and again, if, if you, you want to know who is closer to the views of African Americans, uh, to our you know black brothers and sisters, it's whites who are not Christian um, are much closer uh, to their views, uh, to sharing their views on these issues than, than white Christians are. Um, so I think that's the depth of the problem is that we so pulled the you know the the wool over our own eyes that that it, it we have resistance um, you know to even seeing uh, the problem, much less dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you bringing us back to the biblical language, which may not resonate with all our listeners, but certainly will with some. Um, when we talk about what sin is, and I think similarly, it's helpful. Or it has been helpful for me to be reminded that um, confession and repentance. Those, those are blessings. They're not curses. They're, they're gifts um, for our good. I mean, in my tradition of late, um, I've attended the members of churches where we confess and repent uh, individually and corporately every week. And we mm-hmm. remind ourselves, um, you know, that, that yes, repentance is a gift and there's freedom in being honest about our sin. And that's true individually and, and collectively. And so I think for me, you know, it, it's been tempting to, to always be angry um, about this information and to communicate out of anger. Um, and I feel that way. But but at the same time, you know, I try to remind myself and, and others um, this this honest reflection um, is has the potential to bless us, um, to heal us. Uh, to to help us find freedom. Um, and conversely, if we don't do that, you know, the, the implications are are negative. It is, it is, it, it can be damning, but it doesn't have to be. Um, if we could just be honest and, you know, I think it was Baldwin who says, you know, not everything that is faced can be changed, but but nothing that is, if, if you don't face things, you can't change them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you, so, you mentioned yeah. kids, and I, I think about my kids in this context, a lot too, you know, because I think many white people get caught up in um, defending our ancestors, right? That that we don't want to mm-hmm. uh, call or you know throw shame toward our or feel shame about our what our ancestors did our, ourselves. Um, we uh, in many cases, you know, have great r- relationships with with people who did uh pretty awful things race racially or held pretty awful world you know kind of worldviews or or attitudes about african-american people um but yet treated us well and loved us and played an important part in our lives and that's really complicated um but but i think that the thing that has helped me is to realize that you know we do have some choices to make here and particularly vis-a-vis you know our kids i mean at some point you know we are going to be someone's ancestor right um uh and you know, when they look back, what do they want? To, what do we want them to see in us? You know, were were we the ones who broke the chain? Uh, and and we can take some pride in that, right? There's not just shame to be had here, but but when we take the appropriate action and we're the ones who break a cycle, break a chain. I mean, it's many, in many ways, it's it's like other kinds of like addiction, right? Um, that if we have this history of drug abuse or alcoholism or you know, and and we're the generation or or physical and emotional abuse, and but we're the generation that breaks that chain. Um, that's something you know to feel some real pride in, and and it is a gift um, that we're handing uh, to our kids and to our grandchildren uh, because we're really facing things 
and trying to set things right in a way that will set them, you know, on a better path. And, you know, and I think in, to put it starkly, it does come down to, or at least I have felt like, well, look, I, I can try to go to the mat to defend my ancestors, um, or I can try to hand a better world to my kids, but I, I can't do both. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, well, Robbie, as we sort of turn the corner toward the conclusion of our conversation, I, I want to talk about the last chapter of the book, Reckoning. And in that chapter, you write, quote, the disruptive experience of current trends, particularly demographic change and the exodus of younger white adults from Christian churches over the last few decades may provide motivation for change. But at this late point in our history, real reforms may arise only from the ashes of the current institutional forms of white Christianity, end quote. Um, these, these words have, have really haunted me um, as I reflect on my hopes for individual and institutional change. Um, we discussed before we started recording um, you know, our respective contexts. And one of the learnings for me has really been, and has just been illuminated in our conversation, in, in some really important ways, our white Christian institutions are not, are not built to, to facilitate the kind of repentance and repair that, that needs to be had. And so in this quote, you suggest, and I'm interpreting it, so, some things may have to, to burn down some things may have to die um, if there's to be new life, if we're to have hope. So I guess, Robbie, what, what are your hopes um, for repentance and refor ref reformation uh, of individuals and institutions, white Christian individuals and institutions? Yeah, uh, well, you know, one of the things that I became clear about in writing uh, White Too Long is, uh, you know how much I, uh, even as even as I'm disappointed in the institutional church and white and particularly white institutions and um, many of the fraught kind of relationships I've had with with them, um, I nonetheless care deeply about its future. You know, or I really I realized like I I just wouldn't have written the book if I didn't care um, about its its future. Um, so, you know, in many ways, it was kind of a painful sentence to write that one that you, but I, I think it's true, you know, and so if you look at, um, you know, it's not just kind of external data either. I mean, you know, the like take the largest evangelical uh, denomination uh, in the country, Southern Baptist, um, you know, even their internal numbers have documented um, that they have lost, um, you know, nearly 2 million members uh, from their height. Um, uh, you know, so at uh, some point they were more than 16 million. Um, they're down now around 14 million. Um, and most of that's been over the last couple of decades. Um, just steep, steep declines. Uh, the average or the, the median age of um, white evangelicals today is uh, is 54. Um, and it keeps ticking up. Uh, if we look at young people today, Americans under the age of 30, um, forty percent of them claim no religious affiliation. So not only are they not Christian, they're not religious at all. 
Uh, and when we asked them about like why that is, I mean, many of them were grew up Christian and left. Uh, and they cite things like hyperpartisanship, anti-gay attitudes, uh, um, anti-black attitudes, anti-immigrant attitudes as reasons why they couldn't stay. Um, so they didn't leave because they rejected kind of core, you know, the core values of Jesus. They left because they couldn't recognize them in the church. Um, and I, I think that's that's the real danger that that we built many of these white seminaries and white churches to perpetuate white Christian communities. That was their purpose, uh, and in many ways to justify um, the kind of white uh, power structure um, that existed, um, you know, in in our cities and communities. Um, so you know the fact that. Um, you know, a lot of churches would take pride that the the uh, the owner of the biggest bank in town, the mayor, um, you know, the kind of civic leaders were part of their churches, um, and that they were you know really part of that that power structure, um, and that you know really didn't see a lot of conflict. Um, you know, there I think tells us a lot. Um, but they they weren't really, as you say, I think they weren't built. Um, to turn a critical eye on ourselves. Um, they were really built um, to perpetuate um, kind of our place in society and our, our place in the power structure um, in, in those uh, societies. Um, and, and so that that's a that's a pretty big order, right? To kind of um, shift around um, or, or to really shift that, that mission um, uh, uh, from self-perpetuation uh, to really what's more in line with the gospel, really, um, um, you know, to be good news to the poor. Um, uh, and I think it's been a while since, you know, most Christian churches have really done that, and that that's been the main reason for their existence. That's why I said, you know, I, I, I really don't know whether we're capable of it. And the other metaphor I've used sometimes is um, I had a personal bout with um, uh, cancer in 2011, um, and um, it was a bit, you know, stage three cancer it was a little touch and go there for a while. And, you know, you realize that, um, okay, if I'm going to survive, it's going to take some pretty radical acceptance of some pretty radical treatments. Um, you know, in my case, it was surgery, uh, uh, you know, uh, months of chemotherapy. Um, and, you know, in that experience, you know, you feel sometimes as if the treatment may be worse than the disease or the treatment itself may kill you. Um, but you do it and you endure it because you know at the end of the tunnel, if you survive, there's new life. Um, and I think in many ways, um, we're going to have to be willing to undergo something like that, uh, you know, maybe even as, as, um, uh, uh, as, as radical as like a bone marrow transplant, which I didn't have, but, you know, where, where you, you essentially have to kill um, your body's defense mechanisms in order to let something new uh, take root. And we've just built up so many defense mechanisms uh, over the years to defend structures, uh, defend our innocence. And that word innocence, I think, is, is one that's really important, that we really haven't been willing to look um, at, at and even see the need for repentance and repair. Um, and so we're going to have to get rid of these defense mechanisms, I think, in order for us to find new life. And if we don't, you know, I think that that we're we really are looking at a death spiral um, in many white Christian churches where you know, that old mission of self-perpetuation uh, is not one most young people are are buying. Well, as my friend Stephen Ivey says, woo-sign, 
that's 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 some hard truths um god help us well robbie um thank you for your time today for being a friend and a teacher to me do you have any last words for our audience today no, I mean, I, the, I, well, I guess the last thing I would say is that um, I, I do want to just salute the work that that you all, you and your listeners are doing on the ground. Um, I, I do think this is, you know, if we're going to find a new path um, to a, a shared future, it's not going to be a top-down thing, right? Denominations aren't going to solve this problem, um, but local congregations are going to have to solve this problem, and 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 individual Christians in community um, are going to have to solve this problem. I mean, that the bridges are going to have to be built at the local level. Um, the repair is going to have to be done at the local level because each each place has its own history, right? And and the wounds aren't generic; they're specific um, to place and time. Uh, and so, I I think the work that um, is doing there uh, on the ground. I mean, that really is uh, where you know the work of the spirit and um, the work of healing is is going to take place. Thank you for those kind words, Robbie. We received them and hope to hope to live into them. So, Dustin, we wanted to spend a few minutes discussing what we heard from Robbie and what we hope for Northwest Arkansas generally and the church in Northwest Arkansas specifically. So, Dustin, what did you hear from Robbie? Yeah, there are a couple of things that uh, stood out to me in the interview, which I, I liked very much. But uh, there are uh, two thoughts that I have. And the first one is uh, uh, a bit heavier because there's some trauma in some things that he said, mm. um, particularly where he um, talks about in the beginning his family heritage. And he talks about the family Bible that was handed down um, that was published in 1799 and went into his family in 1815. But the the part is where they had the, the list of items that were um, uh, handed down as well as part of this estate. And, you know, there's, you know, a bed and there's animals and um, a part of all these, this, you know, common family things uh, are uh, for human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, it doesn't surprise me, but, you know, just this is a black man, you know, who um, who knows that my historical family heritage is, is slavery. It's just, it's, it's just hard to, 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 to be reminded of that reality of the, the casualness of the dehumanization um, that— um, my ancestors had to experience Mm -hmm. that you have a list of of things that are being handed down generationally and uh, those things include human beings Um, and uh, there's no mention in the way that he talks about it of those human beings even being named Mm -hmm. um, of any dignity being given to them at all but just you know four bodies and um, you know that that's unsettling, um, but to see how normal um, racism and dehumanization was um, in the American system and in, in the psyche of um, 
uh, white people in America that um, to I'm sure to be able to read that list for human beings being on the list didn't even stand out as being, you know, um, absurd um, as a, and I, I as things to be included on that kind of a list. And then the second thing with that that he said was uh, when he was talking about the the, the table, mm-hmm. right? And it's you know again those those heirlooms, and uh, he talks about the 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 father's chair, right? Of being the 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 head of the household, the patriarch chair, right? And I remember you know growing up in my uh, grandfather's house. My grandfather had a had a, a, a table and chair set that was similar to that, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the, his chair was sturdier and more solid than all the other chairs, and had armrests. And then, uniquely, there was like a woman's version that was similarly built, but it wasn't as solid. Hmm. And so there was like you know the patriarch and matriarch chair, but it was clear by size and you know, thickness of the materials, which one was made for, you know, the, the, the patriarch in the family. But that idea that he communicates of, of that, that visual of sitting at the head of the table and basically having complete oversight and control over what happens and for that to be the visual is something that you know, is 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 startling to to because I know that, but it's it's a hard truth to it to 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 have to acknowledge, right? From the fact is that you know even the conversations that we have about race, right, are primarily white centered, mm-hmm. right, and so so much of it is contingent on whether or not white people will, will agree and buy in. Right. So even in our pursuits of, you know, uh, creating systemic change, right, of doing, you know, reparations and repair. Right. It is it goes through white people. Mm -hmm. Right. The buck stops here. Right. And, you know, that is that's a hard reality, you know, for myself and I know for other people of color as well who. who have to chew on that, on that, and as you fight for ways to decenter whiteness, right, in our lived experience and even in these pursuits, right, for humanity and dignity, right, how do you shift that conversation from the white, you know, person at the head of the table, mm-hmm. right, dictating the terms and the means of everything um, to something that is, far more egalitarian, far more equitable and balanced, you know, and, and so that, so, so that's hard. And then the, 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 the other thing that I heard was really towards, you know, the last 20 minutes of the interview where he begins to talk about, um, the, the data Mm -hmm. about the racial, um, uh, basically, intensity chart. Uh, the racism index. Index. That's the word mm-hmm. that I was looking for. And and how being a Christian was a direct indicator of 
uh, how high you would score mm-hmm. on that index. You know, from evangelical Christians being an eight to Catholics and other Protestants being a seven. Mm-hmm. And so not far off, but white Christians in general only being a four. And but in the concept of the book White Too Long, of realizing that the the force that white supremacy is, that whiteness is as a concept, and how powerful it's been to um, transform the presuppositions, basic presuppositions, and paradigms of entire people groups <laughs> is phenomenal to me. Mm-hmm. And to where we get to the point of white too long, of acknowledging that there is a real reality that a person could be inside of a system for so long that they are far too institutionalized to change the way they think about any, uh, something. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps me put some uh, a, a more recent experience I had into perspective. And so I, I, I had uh, the, the chance to talk to an older white gentleman at my church who uh, added me on Facebook. And a part of him becoming uh, acquainted with me on social media was him to go down my, uh, my, my previous posts and to begin to comment on them in disagreement of the things that I had said. Okay. Right? And uh, I deleted all the comments and, and I, I, I messaged him. I was like, hey, if you want to have a conversation about this, I'm, I'm, I'm open to have a conversation with you about it. But something interesting happened in the conversation, right? After I listened to him and allowed him to say what he wanted to say, um, and I began to, to you know, discuss to him what, what the, the, the Christian framework really was, right? And the, what the scriptures teach about justice and all these kinds of things. And, and one of the things that he said to me, uh, after I was explaining to him, you know, you know, law and Leviticus, Jubilee and Deuteronomy, like all these kinds of concepts that come out of the Old Testament and the prophets that, you know, you know, white Christians tend to not be aware of. Mm-hmm. He was like, that sounds like socialism. And it, it blew my mind that that would be what he immediately said. Mm-hmm. But I we got to a point in the conversation where I asked him and I said, if it came down to it, that you had to decide to get behind what the scriptures say, what Jesus says, or to get behind what your social political identity is, what one, which one will you choose? What is that? And he couldn't give me an answer. Because mm. mm. he came to the conclusion in our conversation that they didn't match. Like I made that explicitly clear for him. They don't match, mm-hmm. right? So if you had to choose Jesus or choose the other, right, which one would you choose? And I think one of the 
the greatest feats that white people have, white Christians have been able to do in America is to make people believe that they are Christians, Mm -hmm. though they do not believe or obey any of the commandments of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me. And it's in line with what Frederick Douglass said in the the late 1800s. He says, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I can conceive of no more dramatic difference, Mm -hmm. no wider chasm between those two ideas. But that's what we have in our current reality, right? We have a group of people who are wholly committed to not living like Jesus or following his commandments at all, but who are wholeheartedly believed and identified with the movement that this person created. Mm -hmm. It's mind boggling. And so, but when you, you know, challenge that presupposition of, of white Christians that they actually are what they by name claim to be, mm-hmm. right? When you, when you challenge that, it, it, it creates, you know, a painful level of cognitive dissonance for them, right? Because what, they ha- what, what has been managed is to actually steal from Jesus that identity, right, and create something completely different, but wholeheartedly believe that what you are holding on to and promoting is the same as what Jesus himself promoted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the, the conundrum we find ourselves in, Right? And to a level, it's a type of insanity. It is. Right? To where none of the evidence of what you say you are, right, matches to the reality of what that thing is. But you still claim to be that thing. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like the whole saying, like, people would say, you know, you know, you know telling yourself you're a Christian, you know, mm-hmm is doesn't make you one just like being in uh uh gar- standing in the garage doesn't make you a Cadillac mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. <laughs> like we understand that logic but that is the reality that we we live in mm-hmm. that we have people re- literally standing in churches and think just because they stand in churches and go there regularly and give their money there means that they are Christian mm-hmm. right just like me standing in the car like I'm like man I like I'm big I'm wide, you know, the old big body Cadillac. Hey, we match. I'm a Cadillac. I'm definitely a Cadillac. And like for me to say that to you, I'll be like, dude, you are out of your mind. Mm-hmm. But how have we not held that same reality for white Christians mm-hmm. who do who reflect nothing of the character or commands of Jesus to have the ability to continually claim to be Christians and to be accepted in the public arena mm-hmm. of our country. The, in, the public square accepts that. Oh, that's the Christian group. Mm-hmm. It's insanity. And, like, and that's the most you know, thing that stood out to me. That's the, like, how, how do we get to this reality, right? And then how do you even begin to deconstruct that? Mm. 
Dustin, thank you um, for sharing those comments. I think the you know the content from Jones is is heavy, as are your comments about it, which is appropriate. Those are hard truths we need to hear from from both Jones and from yourself. Um, I agree with you, Dustin. We discussed in the interview with Jones um, some of James Baldwin's words. Um, in the fire next time, he wrote, the tendency among black people has been to dismiss white people as the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing. And we discussed the fact that Baldwin was not alone in that analysis, that King and Malcolm X and others made similar comments. And, and the data, the contemporary, the, the, the modern data um, from Jones suggests some things have not changed um, relative to that, that madness. And, and that, you, you know, the, the way that I summarized Jones' first two books, he just released a third that I'm excited to read, but the first two, The End of White Christian America and White Too Long, the, the, the summary statement for me is that white Christian America is sick and dying, sick and dying. And you know, the, the sickness, I think, is, is the sickness of whiteness. We have been more white than Christian as white Christians, as, as I think you illustrated well in your um, comments about your, your friend from church. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll skip around a little bit here in, in my comments and in, in what I heard, but towards the end of the interview, Jones... Um, shared that at one time he had cancer, and um, he he hesitated to to undergo the treatment because his fear was that it would be worse than the sickness itself. But ultimately, he he did undergo the the treatment because he wanted to be cured of the sickness. And and I think what he was suggesting is that as white Christians, we need to to be honest about our moral sickness. And if we can't do that, then we, we can't be healed. And, you know, I think sickness is, is helpful for me in this conversation because I think all of us want to be well. None of us want to be sick. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I think about myself as a white person, a white Christian, I, I want to be well in the same way that many of the sick people that Jesus interacted with in the gospels, you know, he'd ask folks, what do you, what do you want? He'd ask these sick people. They say, I want to be, I want to be well. I want to see, I want to walk, right? I want to be, I want to be healed. And, and so I think that it's, it's helpful for us to call white people to that, that healing. Um, but, but that, that treatment the severity of it is going to correspond with the severity of our sickness. And, and what Jones communicates very clearly through the data is that our sickness is, is very severe. And one of, one of the, the, the comments that he makes towards the end of White Too Long, he says, um, real reform may only come from the ashes of the current institutional forms of white Christianity. And... And I think that's really important for us to, to think about as white Christians. How, how badly do we, do we want 
to be healed, to be made well? Do we at all? And, and I think, Dustin, you know, we've talked about this, you and I, in, in our time off the mic, but, you know, for me, I've reflected on, you know, Paul's conversion that he recounts, I think, in Acts 22, Acts 20-something. But he recalls this, this interaction he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he asks him two questions, Paul does, of Jesus. The first is, who are you? And the second is, is what shall I do? And I think that for Christians, those are maybe the two primary questions that we can ask. Who, who is Jesus and what shall we do? And my fear for, for many of us who are white is that, you know, as the hymn says, we've, we've not turned our eyes upon Jesus. We've not looked full in his wonderful face because we, we know that Jesus loves us, but we've forgotten or we've not known that Jesus loves justice. That is a part of who he is. And, and if we were to look full in his face, then, then we would see that. We would behold him in that way, and we would become like him, people who, who love justice, who do it, who hate injustice. Um, but, but to your point, Dustin, we've, we've, we've not seen that part of Jesus, um, perhaps because we don't want to, perhaps for other reasons, but um, to, for us to be Christians requires us to, to behold and become like Jesus. Um, and, and I think, again, that, that will be costly for us individually and institutionally. Um, but I'm convinced, I'm persuaded personally that, um, you know, the, the benefits of the treatment outweigh the alternative, um, which is really sickness unto death um, for us morally and otherwise. The, the other thing, Dustin, that I heard, and, and there was so much that, that Robbie had to say, um, and I really enjoyed, you know, the entirety of our conversation and, and of his books. But in um, The End of White Christian America, he's reflecting on racial reconciliation. And um, he, 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 he's reflecting on, he, he says, um, if, if we want racial reconciliation, then we first need to remember, repent, and repair. And he suggests that racial reconciliation is, is a destination far on the horizon and that there are no shortcuts to get from here to there. And in our conversation, in the interview, he said pretty candidly, he said, I-, I wish white Christians would stop talking about racial reconciliation. And I, I wish they would start, this is my paraphrase, but walking repentance and repair. Mm-hmm. Stop preaching cheap grace reconciliation. Start practicing expensive costly repentance and repair um and to tie those things together dustin you know the the need for reform the need to repent the need to repair all of this he says in the same way that king said in letter from a birmingham jail not because he hates white christians he, he, you know, at, at the, the end of the interview, he was reflecting on why he wrote the books. And he says, because I care about the church. 
the, the white church. He said, I wouldn't have written the books if I didn't. And so I think that's, you know, the why behind the what I think is really important for us to, to note. Um, and I think that's true for, for me and you as well. We're not, we're not here because we hate people, um, because we want bad for them. Um, we're here because we love people and we want people to be set free by the truth um, as best we can see it. Um, so that's, that's what I heard. You want, you want to talk hopes? Yeah, let's go. Um, I, I have two. Yeah. Um, and, and first of all, thank you for sharing that. I think mm-hmm. um, I'm right there with you and all of that. I think the first, uh, I have, a, I have a, a, a personal one, and then I have one that is more broadly in relation to um, white Christians. My, my personal hope is that I would be able to lean more into the historical experience of, you know, my ancestors in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, something that stood out particularly in the interview in, um, that is moving me to this point is this, the, the conversation around Baldwin and King mm-hmm. and to where they, they get to the position, right, where they both acknowledge, right, that, that the white church is sick, is mm-hmm. corrupted, is um, in an uh, incredibly unhealthy place. And the expectation that there is um, enough evil or brokenness or disparity to be seen that will ignite the collective conscience of the white church to do the right thing is no longer a reasonable reality. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in the present, the struggle with getting to the same conclusion that, you know, they got to was that I didn't, I don't live in the same explicit racist reality that they lived in, Mm -hmm. right? I don't live in a reality where, you know, people will go to church service and then go to a lynching and after service, right? I don't, I don't live, I didn't live in, in proximity to that in real time, right? I didn't, I didn't live in the time where, like my grandfather did, where he couldn't look a white man in the eye, right? Even if that white man claimed to be a Christian and should have been his brother. I didn't live in that reality, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, my distance from, right, that that experience is, affects my ability sometimes to, to appropriately measure the, the, potential for white Christians to be reformed. Hmm. And the thing that I, I have, I've come to, to realize is that though I don't want to acknowledge it, I have come to a place in my own life where I do not I am unwilling to endear myself to white Christians. Right. I was once in a place and you were I, you, you, you knew me when I was in this place. I did. Where I was willing to do so. All right. For the hope that we could ignite change 
And over the course of my own experience and over the course of my observation of the current historical moment where we are in these conversations has put me in a place because of my own hurts and because of my own experiences and the hurts of my brothers and sisters as well that I cannot endear myself to white Christians unless there is real fruit and evidence that there is reform and transformation happening. And so, like, and my hope is that I can draw from the resilience of previous generations and how they were able to remain hopeful, right, in light of that same conclusion. And then I have a second hope, and it's a hope that I have become, it's a naive hope that is, that I hold pessimistically. Okay. And that is that white Christians will have their collective conscience awaken Mm -hmm. to be able to see, right, the chasm that is between what they claim to be and what they really are, Mm -hmm. right, that will see the 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 pain and the suffering right that has been caused to black and brown people across this country right in the president and then and historically and will be moved to make that right i looked up that you know daniel tiger episode <laughs> yeah you know and he's you know and he says you it's not you you all you say i'm sorry but you also say how can i make it right yeah right how can i make it better and and that for that reality to come into you know come true to come to exist existence and I, it is a naive hope but it is a pessimistic one right because i naively want to believe that the gospel still can transform people even if those people believe in the Jesus that they have made up in their mind and not the real one, mm-hmm. right? Um, I still want to believe that the that the gospel can penetrate through that hardness, right, through that sickness and create health. But pessimistically, if I'm honest, that I don't have a high expectation for it. And the reason that I know that I don't have a high expectation for it is because I'm not willing to put the same kind of energy and effort behind trying to create that as I once was, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, you know, that's where I am. And, uh, you know, even being a part of this is, you know, is, 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 is healing and helping me, like, realize kind of like where my own journey has been, you know, in, in some of this, um, to where like, you know, I was, you know, I was ready and consistently willing to be on the front line to do it and no longer have that urge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm in a wait and see, you know, not even in a wait and see, to be honest, I'm just going on and doing what I feel like, you know, God has called me to do in this season of my life. Mm-hmm. And not waiting on people to to wake up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dustin, I appreciate 
you sharing your hopes and doing so honestly. And um, I share your hopes um, from a different position. Um, you know, I, I just finished a couple books uh, written by and about black women. Uh, one is the Truth Table book, so written by black women. And another is a book about Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, who's become a hero of mine. And uh, in the Truth Table book, Michelle Higgins talks about being uh, born again, again. Uh, and what she meant by that is that she spent some time, um, not to oversimplify it, but in, in a, a white Christian tradition, she was educated in that context and mm -hmm. got reconnected with um, the black Christian tradition around the time of uh, that Mike Brown was murdered. She lives in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So she said she was born again, again. Um, and and in, a, in a way, if I may say, I've been born again, again, too. And um, am so bold to claim some of your ancestors as my spiritual ancestors, to look at somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer and say, I want to be like her. I want her to be a spiritual mother to me. Uh, I want Martin King, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells to be my, my spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers. Fannie Lou Hamer said she was going to tell it like it is. She said America's so full of hypocrisy and we've been trying to sweep things under the rug. But she said, I've come out from under the rug to tell it like it is. She said, I'm going to, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine and I'm, I'm going to let it shine for freedom and for justice. And and she did that. And, and I think that... Um, she is she is someone for us to follow. Um, she she's a saint. Um, she she's in that cloud of witnesses that we look to um, so that we don't grow weary. Mm -hmm. um, and I and, and so I share your first hope, but but from a different place. And, and your second hope, um, I, I think I share too, Dustin. You know we've we've talked. And um, I've talked to other people and, and thought a lot about what should we expect um, of people like me, um, of white Christians, um, of, of churches like the ones that, that I was raised in, white Christian churches. And um, I, I have to be careful here because it's easy for me to, to sound like I've arrived at some high place and I'm looking down at others and so I, I admit that's a, a danger in, in, in this conversation but again from someone who is trying to speak truth the best that I can to, to comment on what I believe to be true um, I, I think that some of us have an opportunity to be what I've called first jumpers and um, what I mean by that Dustin is uh, I went to the lake with my children, my, my six and four year old sons, and uh, they feared jumping into the water. They didn't want to be the ones to jump first, but I jumped in and they were willing to jump second and third um, because they had an example to follow. And so when we think about reparations specifically um, in our country and in our community, um, you know, the data suggests, and we'll hear more about this um, next month from William Darity, but. Um, 
black people are, are in the water relative to reparations. 80% of black people support reparations now, okay? White people are not in the water. About 30% of us do. Um, so it's, it's not popular to support reparations if you're a white person today. But what I've been reflecting on, Dustin, is... You know, we look back at the the 1960s and we think about integration. We look back at the 1860s and we think about abolition. And we we think about that time and we say, of course, I would have supported integration. I would have supported abolition. And so, Dustin, it's possible that my children or my grandchildren may look back at the 2020s and say, of course, I would have supported reparations. Um... But we don't live in the future, we live in the present. And so the opportunity is for a few of us to overcome our fear, white people, and to jump into reparations now, believing that if we do, if we jump first, then others may jump second, third, and fourth later, either because they've been transformed, because they've had a Damascus Road experience, because they've seen Jesus and looked full in his face and seen that not only does Jesus love me, but that Jesus loves justice, right? Either so, so some people will be transformed, but thinking about history again, right? Thinking about integration, thinking about abolition, th- those things didn't happen because everyone was transformed. Those those things happened because it became unpopular to oppose them, and so some people will support reparations later, not because they've been transformed, but because it's become popular and safe to do so. That's how change happens in history, mm-hmm. and, and so. I think that you're, you are correct to say that you are pe- pessimistic about a naive hope if our expectation is that everyone will be transformed and see the light. Mm-hmm. That, that will not happen. Mm-hmm. But it is possible that, that we, will see, we will see real change relative to reparations. I, I, I don't know if we will or not, but, but I believe that it's possible. Um, and, and I hope that we see it perhaps in our lifetime perhaps in the lifetimes of our, our children or grandchildren, but we get to contribute to it. Um, so those are my hopes. Dustin, any last words from you for today? No, it's been a good conversation. I've enjoyed it and uh, glad to be able to be a part of this podcast. Me too, brother. Me too. Okay. That's all for today's episode. Y'all come back for an interview with Dr. William Darity next month and go to our website, reparationsnownwa.com to get information about the R-Word events, like our community reading and discussion about the book Reparations and our community viewing and discussion about the film, The Big Payback, this fall. Thanks. Securities, living a lie, living a lie.